can definitely send you my portfolio. My master's project is in there. Um, the chair that I was mentioning in there is in there. I worked in a, I worked in in, in refugee camps throughout my my postgrad um, in Erbil in Bangladesh and did little projects there, collaborated with NGOs and stuff like that. And all of that is also in my portfolio. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to share it with you. Hello, insiders, and welcome back to another episode of the Creative Insider Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please do subscribe on the channel so that you won't miss any other of the episodes that we're going to do with other great guests. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other audio platform, thank you very much. Feel free to leave a review. So now we can start with the next great guest in this podcast episode. I'm super happy to have had her on. She is a great architect. She comes from Iraq. She lived in Germany. Now, after working so hard, she managed to get a job in one of the dream offices in the world. Big. So I want you to give it up for Sinamie Koop because she's going to be the guest of this podcast episode. And the story that she had was great. She was born in Iraq in 93. She moved in the 90s in Germany, in Aachen, where she grew up, studied, worked hard. And then she ended up in New York after a long, long path. So it's going to be a great story. Go through the whole story with us. It's going to be awesome. I'm so happy to have met her and to introduce her to you. Before we start, I want to remind you that all the shows can be watched live. So in the future, you could ask your own questions to our guests. They're going to be great guests from other leading offices, designers, and so on. It's everything on our Patreon page, linked in the description. Go there, join the Real Insiders, just $5 a month, but you'll support the existence of this podcast. So thank you very much. Enjoy the next podcast episode. Hello, Sinam. Welcome to the Creative Insider Hi. Podcast. How are you? Hi, it's nice to be here. I think you have a super interesting story and uh, you're a bigster. So all bigsters have sort of a special place <laughs> in our hearts. <laughs> um, and also like, I don't know, you are originally from Germany or I mean, you have some, some sort of German background um, among others, but you can introduce yourself. So the people are going to understand a little bit more about you and who you are. Right. Um, well, I'm Sina. Uh, I am. I grew up in Germany. That's true. I did spend the majority of my life in Germany. I was born in Iraq, though. I was born in Erbil, in northern Iraq. And we moved to Germany when I was a child, like four years old. And then I did everything in terms of education and stuff in Germany, in Aachen. It's like a small town in northwestern Germany. Um, and then I've moved around a bunch. I started ar studying architecture when I was like 19. And then throughout my education, I tried to live in different places and stuff like that. And then eventually now I landed in New York and work at Big as a designer. And that's where I'm currently at. Yeah, so there are a lot of topics to cover here. Uh, I can tell you <laughs> that uh, another crossing point in our story is that we're both uh, immigrants uh, mm -hmm. uh second generation it's like second time immigrants because your family moved from iraq to germany and then you now you're in the u.s uh right. and for me it was bulgaria italy germany and let's see what's mm -hmm. gonna be next oh, wow. 
And then I work mm-hmm. for a company whose headquarters are in Aachen. So currently Aachen is paying my salary. <laughs> so I couldn't be, <laughs> I couldn't be happier <laughs> about that. Wait, so you've been a bunch of times. You've been to Aachen. I've been once. It was last month, my okay. first time in Aachen, uh, which was, they told me it's very unusual for a person that joins the company to be to have a possibility to go to Aachen so quickly because usually you, you don't travel that much. Okay. Um, but I vis- it's called Carpus, if you ever heard about this company. Mm-hmm, so of course, Carpus, yeah. They have a big headquarters there. And uh, so it was... They take up a lot of space. Yeah. They take up a lot of space in Aachen in terms of their buildings and stuff like that. Yeah, they have a beautiful space and shout out to Carpus for paying my salary and allowing <laughs> me to survive every month. <laughs> Nice. Did you like the town? Did you like the old town? No, we didn't have time. We went on a business trip. So we just went okay. uh, in the morning very early, did a workshop for the whole day, and then we came back. Uh, I know that uh, it's a very important historical city because it's where they, I think, uh, uh, crowned Carl the Great. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the big thing in Aachen. And there are a lot of meetings there sometimes that are very symbolic so it's an interesting city uh, right to go back to your story uh, so you said mm-hmm. you're you've been born in in iraq uh when when uh, when did you get born which, which year you're born if i may ask yeah of course i was born in 1993 okay and then we moved to germany in 1997 if i'm completely wrong yeah i was like oh, four okay. years old so you you like you moved before the whole 2000s Iraqi war and yeah. so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We moved way before that. Um, and then, yeah. What, what, what was the reason for, to, for your family to move away from Iraq? And uh, was it sort of a difficult uh, process to get to Germany because of the distance between the two countries? And I guess, yeah. I don't know, because back in the days there was a certain political situation and maybe getting a visa and... Flying to Germany yeah. is not so simple. So what is the story there, if you can share more about it? Um, it actually, it wasn't for political reasons. Um, but I'm the youngest of four. I have three siblings. Well, everyone's older than me. And one of my siblings had needed medical attention at the time. And they couldn't. They simply couldn't provide the level of attention that she needed back in Erbil. Um, so then my parents made the decision that they wanted to move the family to Germany to seek long treat, like long-term treatment. And my father, I know because I, it's funny, I never asked him when I was younger, but only recently once I immigrated to the U.S. myself and I understood how difficult it is to move countries in terms of paperwork and finding your place in a new city and everything. So only then I asked him, what was it like? How did you guys actually migrate? And then I learned that my father was the one who came first and he kind of set up a life in Germany for us. He found an apartment. He made sure that the paperwork is all there and stuff. Um, he also, you always need someone on the other side, I think, who helps you. So I know that he had friends in Germany at the time, kind of paved the way for him. And then once he was here, I think like six or eight months later, he kind of brought the rest of the family over. I know that him coming to Germany was kind of difficult, going to Turkey and using various forms of transportation. And then for us, it was a bit easier from what I know. It was also my mom traveling alone with four children at the time. Uh, but yeah, and then eventually we made it to Germany. I don't remember any of that, of course. And then I remember starting kindergarten, basically. And that's when life took off. 
Yeah, for, for me, it was a little different because, uh, I mean, was similar because my dad went ahead as, as your dad, mm -hmm. just, uh, yeah. and back in the days, Bulgaria was not part of the EU. So, uh, it was a completely different experience, but I remember that, uh, you know, when you, I mean, I'm a year older than you, um, but I don't know when you get around your thirties, somehow your past memories like your older past memories are kind of emerging to the surface so I remember yeah. when he left for italy the evening before he put me to bed and then the next morning he wasn't there and then back in the days there was not so much communication so we could phone like a couple of minutes a week because he would buy those phone cards and call mm -hmm. us from, uh, from, from, a, pub, those, yeah. from a public phone and of course he spent the majority of time talking with my mom about probably some serious stuff uh so yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, definitely something that uh, stays somehow in you when when something like that happens um and, yeah. and what was your experience in in germany when like growing up as a kid there uh i live now in germany and to me it feels like a very a country that went from that extreme situation they had during World War, Second World War, and afterwards into this extremely, uh, I mean, at least it feels to me in my bubble, extremely welcoming, extremely accepting country. But of course, mm -hmm. I wasn't a kid here. So I, I was a kid somewhere else. And I, I, I'm curious if it was hard for you to, if you felt the difference, if, um, yeah, if there were some sort of, I don't know, people treating you differently. How was it for you growing yeah. up in Germany as a kid and as a teenager, young adult? I think, I think I definitely felt it. I, I was lucky in the sense compared to my siblings. I don't know if lucky is the right word, but I had it a bit easier, I think, because I was the only one who also got to go to kindergarten in Germany. So by the time that I started my education, like went to school, I already spoke fully German, uh, which I think is a huge distinguishment from starting right in school and not being able to speak the language. I know my sister, she's six years old. She was already 10. So she went to what would be the equivalent to high school in, in the U.S. And she didn't speak any, any German at the time. So I know that she had a much, much rougher start than I did. So in terms of that, I think I had a bit of, an, of a jump ahead. But um, we grew up in like a bit of an immigrant neighborhood at the time. And we lived in a... I mean, it was just a starting, right? So uh, me and my siblings, we shared a room at the time. This was before my parents started their business and everything and found kind of success in Germany. Um, so we did really live the immigrant life in that sense. And then we had a neighbor who suggested, my mom asked her what school she should send us to, me and my sister. And she suggested this like private, all girls, Catholic school that we would get into if she put in a good word for us. <laughs> and... We're not Catholic. Um, private and all girls immediately meant that it was very ethnically German, like very, very German. Um, so that school time was definitely, I definitely felt it. I wasn't ethnically German. I don't feel like I ever looked very German. I, um, My family didn't live the way that most of those families lived and stuff like that. I'm not Catholic, and I still went to Mass almost every week at the time, or at least once a month when I was older. And I'm Muslim, so that also was like an interesting experience. Um, 
so yeah, I definitely felt it at the time. And I was, I remember being like, oh, I don't know if this is the right place for me. I often felt out of place. But in terms of education, I definitely got the best package, though. I feel like I could have gotten. But did you feel different because you felt different than the others? Or you felt different also because they treated, they saw a difference and they treated you a little bit differently or both? I think the majority was that I felt different. I think the majority was that I felt different and that I remember like in my teenage years, I was like, why am I going to mass? Like, why? This doesn't feel right. I don't know. But then I also understood I just had to. Or um, we had some teachers who insisted in the mornings that we would get up and say the prayer. Um, I don't know what it's called in English. It's called Fatons in German. Um, oh, yeah. the oh, I don't know. It's a like standard pray <laughs> you have to say exactly so then i would get up every morning and say that with everyone and it just felt like, like always a little bit out of place and i know that some and it's just because it was a catholic school so it makes sense that this is kind of the curriculum but i remember my friends who were also like who had immigrant backgrounds they didn't go to schools like this and they had a lot of immigrants around them and then when i took catholic class or evangelic class at the time um they would go and have like alternative classes offered and I didn't have any of that so I remember feeling a bit like resentment for that at the time yeah I can imagine and I think uh, it's so weird that uh, one of the best schools was from and there are a lot of good schools that are uh, sort of schools of the catholic church or or another kind of church Meanwhile, the church has a lot of non-scientific, non-scientific beliefs. So I think it's kind of a paradox that I don't know. You have to go to a church school, but at the same time, you have to learn things that I don't know, not really scientific proven. So it's a, a very big irony. And um, this was your high school. This was my high school experience, yeah. But I did, bottom line, I think I still, I even, I think at the end you choose, in Germany, you choose like four topics to graduate in and to take your final exams. And then I did take religion as one of them. Because by then, like, I had my own religious background. I had gathered so much religious, like, knowledge from going to religion, to like, all these classes about Christians and stuff like that. And then by the end, I felt like very well-versed in terms of being able to debate and see different points of view. So I did enjoy it at the end, but I remember growing up, it was a bit tough. Did, did uh, this experience in the Catholic Church uh, made you more Muslim in a sense that, I don't know, for example, I'm not very religious uh, and I've never been uh, aware that much of, for example, I'm an Orthodox uh, Christian. And uh, before going to school and having the religion class in school in Italy, uh, I'd never thought about... You know, what are the difference between Orthodox Christians and Catholic Christians and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. And this made me like a little bit curious and discovered a little bit more about my own religion. Uh, was it for you something similar that by being forced into this thing that, I don't know, wasn't officially be belonging to your family culture, made you more curious about uh, being a Muslim and what does it mean and so on? I guess, I think so, yeah. I think so, yeah, because when you're the only one, when you're a minority within a big group, you kind of hold on to to your roots because it's the only thing that you know at the time. It's the only thing that feels familiar. And, like, outside of school, all my friends were immigrants from the majority of the Middle East or North Africa. Um, 
so then we all kind of formed this group and we all had very similar experiences growing up in Germany and stuff like that. So I think I really like held on to that identity when I was younger. Um, and at the same time, while I was in the school, this is kind of the big paradox of my life. Like my parents would send me to the school because the education was so good. But at the same time, they obviously were like very, they're, they're religious. My parents are religious. So then I would also go to, to Islamic school on Saturdays. So my whole life, I was like, okay, going to this class and then this class and this class and this class. So it was an interesting balance between the two of them. But the more I did the things in my personal life, the more I held on to them. It was like, this is who I am. This is where I'm from and blah, blah, blah. Versus um, what I'm being taught in school, but what doesn't really represent me. And uh, at what point after all this school experience, uh you decided to take the path of studying architecture and becoming an architect or is someone in your family that's an architect? How did that happen? Um, it was that I've always enjoyed interior design. I remember even when I was younger, I really enjoyed like designing my own room and telling my mom I want this and I want that and stuff like that. So I always knew I wanted to go into the design field. For the longest time, I thought I wanted to be a fashion designer. So. <laughs> And my parents, being typical immigrant parents, were very critical of that. Um, so then they were like, why don't you also consider interior design versus just fashion design? Um, or any form of other design, maybe that has a bit of a more stable future. So I remember I went to, when it came time to graduate high school, I went to a bunch of like open classes that they offered, different universities. Um, and then architecture was one of them. I saw the architectural school in Aachen. And they have a beautiful campus, like one of the most beautiful buildings in the whole town, in my point of view. Um, so then it was going to be interior design or it was going to be architecture. I switched to one of those two. And then I spoke to someone who was an architect and he was like, listen, if you study interior design, you're most likely only going to be an interior designer. If you study architecture, you can do both. You can still be involved in interior design projects, but you can also do the whole realm of architecture. You can still see if you want to do construction. You can see if you want to design buildings altogether. And then I was like, okay, I want to have as many like options as possible. So then I decided I applied to architecture school and I got in and then it just felt right. And I really wanted to be in that campus. So I started studying it. Yeah, I get this question a lot when somebody hears I'm an architect. They ask me interior or exterior. I said there is only interior yeah. and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and like everything included interior. So <laughs> there is a sort of a beef between architects and interior architects. Uh, so I don't yeah. know about beef. I don't know about beef. I think it's still like we work along, I think, really, really well. And I've been involved in love, very heavily interior design focused projects. But I think just taking it to the level of construction, like SD packages, CD packages and stuff like that, like actually reviewing shop drawings and stuff like that um, for the entirety of the building. It's just a different process to me than the interior design processes. Yeah, it's different. But I mean, as you said, you can get specialized um, in some... It's so vast that you cannot really... Uh say like you you cannot know everything right it's so it's too yeah. too much thing too many things to to know um right and uh how was uh, how was for you so in the end of the day you were happy with your decision to to study architecture and also uh the rwth Aachen is one of the the best university probably uh, when i was coming to germany i saw it was the second according to 
the second in Germany, according to some uh, ratings. The first one is mm -hmm, Munich, mm -hmm. uh, Technical right. University in Munich. And uh, what was the education there? Was it uh, like, uh, did you f like, did you, were you happy with the level of teaching you were getting? Uh, once you were joining the professional world, did you feel the school gave you some real advantages compared to, I don't know, other people? Yeah, I think for sure. So in general, I think you should really visit. If you're ever in Aachen again, you should visit the architectural school because um, the way that the studios are set up, it's just that it's in all in one building. So all, every time you get assigned to a studio, you take up this one desk in one space. And it really is, personally to me, the best environment that you could possibly like get in order to, to study. Because it's, imagine like all your friends, everyone sits in one room and we all do our homework together in this one fun room. Someone's playing music in the background. Someone's designing something. Someone's building something. So it feels very, very creative. And I've learned like throughout visiting other architecture schools that most architectural schools are set up like this. And Aachen in specific, the Avateha was very diverse in terms of their curriculum and the things that they offered to you. So I took a bunch of, and all the classes that were a bit more on the special side, it weren't really part of the standard curriculum, were actually the ones that then in my portfolio stood out the most. Like I remember I designed a chair in one of the classes and it's in my portfolio and every job I apply to, they ask about this chair. Like how did I design it? What studio space did I have to do that? How did I have those materials and access to it and stuff like that? Um, so in that sense, Aachen was incredible. And I remember undergrad was a bit studious because you have a very strict program. But postgrad, I think, is when really you got to choose your own classes. You got to choose the professors that you worked in. And in postgrad was the first time that I worked with a professor. Um, he's one of the founders of Kraft Architects in Berlin. So he's pretty successful. And he worked in the realms of architecture activism at the time when he became a professor in Aachen. Um, and his studio that he proposed to us was about designing refugee housing. And it's a topic from my background that I've always been very interested in and like architecture activism and using design in order to, to not just build for the rich and the general public, but also approach design in, in spaces that aren't very, very easy to design in and still have the same amount of dignity and stuff like that in terms of design. So that was the task at the time. And I think it was the first semester of postgrad and it was the best project in terms of my grade that I've ever done. And it was the best relationship I've ever had with a professor. And I feel like that's when like my personal architectural route really took off in postgrad, not undergrad. <laughs> And um, did you, was it this way, This is this your way to connect your profession with your roots, this uh, activist architecture, as you said, or again, as I mentioned before, with the Catholic religion, did architecture made you uh, curious about architecture in Iraq and the roots of your uh, local architecture because for example when I studied um, I had uh, one of my tutors was from uh, Iran uh, which is also mm -hmm. in the Middle East and for example what was super interesting to me is to discover that uh, the Middle Eastern architecture uh, was full of these vernacular techniques and passive architecture like the ventilation towers that they had back right. in the days to have a passive uh, sort of uh, 
mitigation of the internal climate of the building, sort of air conditioning that's without energy. And also, I've never, as like you, I moved when I was eight years old and I didn't know anything about Bulgarian architecture when I left. Mm -hmm. And after I studied architecture, studying history of architecture made me understand why the buildings in Bulgaria look a certain way or uh, some things are in a certain way. So it's a very, it's like a discovery for me. It's like a little bit of a mystery because I also don't have so many connections in, in this field uh, mm. to understand it. So I'm curious if by studying architecture also you were curious to discover the architecture of where you come from. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're from Erbil. It's like, it's, it's the, one of the biggest cities in northern Iraq in the Kurdistan region, what it's called. And Erbil, this is like kind of my favorite fun fact, is the longest continuously inhabited city in the world. And it has a citadel that the way that the citadel in the middle of the center, like in the middle of this town, truly everything around the town is kind of centered around this one citadel. And it is on this like little hill. It's over 2000 years old. It's incredible in terms of structure. It recently, I think in 2000, I want to say 2016 or 18, it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I was always very aware, but also because my parents love to talk about it. Um, only recently, people started to move out of the citadel and inhabit the city around it. And my parents, both of them, are the last generation to be born within the walls of the citadel. So in terms of like an architectural background, there was always this like inheritance that I knew was interesting. And once the war started in Iraq, um, we didn't go back much, but then a few years later when things started to settle down and especially the north became a bit more stable, we started going back to Erbil every year for the summer. And my parents would always take me to the citadel and make me visit. And it's an incredible structure. It really is beautiful. Um, so architecturally, and then my grandmother would always tell me stories of how life was like within these old walls of the city. Um, so I always knew I wanted to study it. And I feel like with architecture, studying architecture, I finally had the tools, especially in postgrad, to study like that space and study in terms of urbanism. How, how does the city move from being within the small wall and having like little pockets outside of the city? And finally, it's now like 1.4 million people living in the city. How does that happen? How does the city grow so fast? How do they move down from living in these very, very strict walls um, and then becoming like a trying to become a modern city? Um, so I always knew I wanted to study that, and I always knew there's something interesting there. And I always researched like architects that do interesting things in the Middle East. And once I was like tearing towards the end of my my postgrad, I stumbled upon a project of Danny Liebeskind, who wanted to design um, a museum at the foothills of that citadel about the Kurdish identity and people being liberated after the fall of the of the the. Saddam at the time, of the president at the time, um, and dedicate, dedicate a whole museum towards the city and the people from there. Um, so then I was so interested by it. I understood, like, this is what's going to be my master thesis. I'm going to study these walls. I'm going to study the city. I'm going to study the history of the people. I'm going to try to find out how the city grew. And that's what I did. So I think around post-grad, it took almost, I think it took a little bit longer than you have for a semester. I took like nine months and I spent two and a half months in the city 
walking around, talking to people who have been there for a while, talking to family members who I know had been living in those walls, um, and trying to find out how, like the first school that was dedicated to girls going there, the first female teacher, the first, and who's now in charge of kind of urbanizing the city and making sure that the UNESCO World Heritage Site is being treated correctly and stuff. So I spent a majority of my master's, I think, actually towards Erbil and understanding those fabrics and stuff. Um, so yeah, it was very, very connected. It's always been very connected for me. Is your portfolio or project available somewhere online? Uh, or not? <laughs> I, have, I have not uploaded my portfolio. I don't know why. Anyone who asks me for it, I'll immediately send it to them. But I've always been very hesitant to upload it online. I don't know why. Well, send it send it to me, and I'll use some of the some of it to promote the episode and so on, so that people can see a little bit of of your work and what we're talking about, uh, and maybe yeah. maybe even edit it into the video while we're talking about it, so that it's gonna be. Uh, yeah, I de- can definitely send you my portfolio. My master's project is in there. Um, the chair that I was mentioning in there is in there. I worked in a. I worked in, in, in refugee camps throughout my, my post-grad um, in Erbil, in Bangladesh, and did little projects there, collaborated with NGOs and stuff like that. And all of that is also in my portfolio. Uh, um, so yeah, I'm happy to share it with you. Were, were you a very good student? Because you give me the impression of you were like the best of the best. <laughs> Like the straight up, uh, I don't know. A, you give me, the, you, you give me this idea because we we uh, people from Europe have this idea that I don't know uh, when somebody comes from Asia or the Middle East and they go to this. Uh, I don't know. Also, the decision of your family to send you to Catholic Church uh, seems to be ruthless. Like they will sacri- school, yeah. sacrifice everything because these children has to study, and you're these smart motherfuckers. <laughs> so you give me the impression of being a really smart person. I want to. I want to really defend my parents. I don't think they sent me to that school because it was like Catholic or whatever. I think they sent me to that school because they heard. That neighbor was like, this is the, the safest school that you could send. Like, it was also all girls. I think that also played into it because my parents were like a bit worried that we we're going to be overwhelmed. And then, I don't know, the language barrier was still there and stuff like that. And um, I think that's why my parents chose that school more. I, I imagine, in terms of- I imagine <laughs> your parents being like, Allah is going to punish us, but we're going to send her because <laughs> no! she needs to study and get the best grades. That's it. <laughs> I don't even think my parents were aware. That's the most beautiful thing. Like, Ask they, your father, I'm pretty did, sure. <laughs> they, they did the best they could, but I don't think they were aware how much religion played an aspect into that school. But in terms of um, being a great student, so I think this is the thing about me. Like when I start something, I always struggle in the beginning. I always struggle. I, it always takes me a bit longer to catch on. I look around when I enter a new project, even even now in my, in my career. When I enter a new project, when I have to learn, learn a new program, like I always... I struggle so hard in the beginning and I have like this feeling everyone around me is so good at what they're doing. And I'm like, it takes me much longer. So undergrad was really not good in terms of my grades. It's, I struggled with the, with the you, amount of workload that you, you have. get a minus or no, I was actually <laughs> struggling. Like I was actually, my grades were not well, like they were really not good. I remember having to take several exams twice. And then in Germany, if you have to, if you fail something twice, if you fail it the third time, you get into this like oral exam. And if you fail that, you cannot study that subject ever again in Germany. Like, think about it. Like, if I'd, if I'd failed that exam another time, 
And then if I then had failed the oral exam, I would have never been able to study architecture again. So undergrad was not good. Postgrad, <laughs> I did catch up. Um, at the time then, I also had a bit of professional experience. I had studied abroad in London, so I felt a bit more confident about my opinions. And then I had started working with professors that were incredibly supportive and were like, why don't you do what you like, not what you feel like I like? Um, and then I did become a great A student. <laughs> yes. I imagine your parents during, during your uh, first part of studies being like, we sent her to Catholic church and this is what we're getting. <laughs> Oh, it's just so, so disappointing. <laughs> no, I know at one point I was really like, mom, I don't know if architecture is it for me. Like I'm struggling so hard. I feel like maybe I'll drop this and start something that's a bit mm. easier in terms of just the workload. Like, like people joke a lot about architecture school being really hard, but we did spend nights after nights after nights in studios. Yes, but trying to... it's different hard than the other things because you don't have to maybe memorize that much things, but you always start with yeah. a white canvas. So to say, yeah. Every time starts yeah. from scratch, and uh, it's not a uh, like there is no uh, how do you say there are no metrics. Like if I spend so much time, I'm gonna have great results. Yes, you're gonna have yeah. better results, but not definitely great. Uh, you yeah. ma you mentioned you you've been for a year in London. Uh, you did an Erasmus experience, or what was that? An exchange. I did a study abroad. It wasn't. It was an. Ex it was like a. It was a study abroad. Um, I, I was like, I've always been obsessed with, first it was England and then it became the US. I think it's very much tied to the language. Like I've always wanted to, to work in a country and live in a country that speaks English as their first language. Um, and then the school that I was in London wasn't part of the Erasmus program. So you can kind of do this thing on your own where you suggest the school to your university and the, the government supports you. They give you like a stipend that you can work with. So I studied at London South Bank in their MARC program for like a semester. And I lived in the dorms and everything and took a few courses and then came back. How did you, how did you like how did you like studying in London and is there was there some different approach to architecture that you learned in England that um, you found different than Germany or something that impressed you? I think I would argue that most places are different than Germany. Like, especially if I look at the US, but also London at the time, architectures, like, especially architecture school is very different. So Germany is very, I always say this to try to, in terms of architecture, Germany's schools are very, they're very honest with the architecture that they teach and the architecture they expect from people. Like, it's all very, there has to be a connection to, to reality. Like you can't propose things. I remember never having been, even if a wall, the thickness of a wall was not drawn to a realistic like measure, the professor would point it out and be like, you obviously haven't done your homework. Like, how's that going to work? Whereas in England, I remember the diagrams that people came up with, the renderings, like it was all very, at the time, like sci-fi architecture even at some point. Maybe it was related to the, to the project that I was also taking on at the time. But I remember getting there and be like, this isn't what I've been taught. Like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't feel like I can produce images like that just because they don't represent how I was taught to study a site, to make a proposal. Um, so even at big now, I sometimes I, I feel like when we, when we have like the beginning phase of a project and we try to come up with concepts, like everyone's like goes wild. And I feel like I'm always very timid. Like I'm always like, okay, let me start with a grid. <laughs> let me set up a grid first and then I'll design around it. And people are like, no, 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 Sinam, forget the grid. Let's go a bit crazy. 
<laughs> so in school in London was very similar to that. Like it was very... Starting with a grid, yeah. it's the most German thing you can say ever because <laughs> German live, live, live by a grid. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful though? You know how helpful a grid is when you come to like a later phase of a project. <laughs> so yeah, it was different in that sense. And uh, while you were studying, did you work as well? Because here in Germany, it's very like popular to be a working student. Uh, or did you move afterwards? How was it for you as a Iraqi girl to find a job? But I mean, in the end of the day, by that time, you were kind of German, no? Because you, you, I guess you don't have any accent while speaking German. Or if you have any, it's probably the typical Aachen accent. <laughs> so I say uh, some words. I say some words that are very, very, very tied to the accent that people use in Aachen. But other than that, no, I think I sound pretty German when I speak. Um, I did work when I was a student. I worked in a in an office close to close to my hometown, and I did that as a student trainee, basically. And this was at that point I had already studied abroad. I'd done like a TA job. So I had a bit of work experience before I started working as a, as a student trainee. And I didn't have much trouble, I remember, getting a job. Um, and I remember once I had that job, things went pretty well. I was getting along really well with, with, the, with the boss at the time. So personally, I felt like I never had trouble landing a job at that point. But I... Yeah, I don't know if my identity personally in that area felt, played a big role, but I, there's definitely an aspect of being an immigrant and applying to the same, because I had a lot of friends who looked a bit more like they weren't German. And every time I would, like, you know how you often refer people if you feel like they're good? And people often ask, do you have referrals? Do you know anyone who would be perfect for this job? And I would refer friends. Um, and I know that they had a bit of a harder time landing the same jobs that I would. And I felt like we had the same background, we had the same studies, we had the same grades. But for whatever reason, they had a bit of a more hiccup to, to land those jobs that I landed a bit easier. Mm. I think just because I looked a bit more, I would argue it's definitely related to me looking a bit more German. But I do want to add in terms of identity, there was a study in Germany. You're not considered ethnically German until five generations of living in Germany. Like it's mind blowing. Like five, if you think of all these, for example, like the majority of Turkish immigrants, they've been there for three generations. And the grandchildren of the people who migrated to Germany are still not fully considered German. So, yeah, it takes Germany a bit longer, I think, for people to fully accept. It, depend, it depends where you live. Because, I mean, Aachen is still a little bit smaller. Uh, yeah. I live in Frankfurt, where on the weekends, barely you, you hear Germans on, on the street. Uh, but, yeah, I mean... I don't know. I always say that though Germany gives great opportunity to the foreign immigrants because if look at the background, an Austrian guy got all the way up, so he was not even German. <laughs> I don't think that's a good example for Germans. Germans giving immigrants a good chance. Sometimes they um, pick the no, wrong people, but they give them opportunity. Definitely have, they definitely have in the past. They definitely have in the past. Um, no, it does. In terms of support, I mean, if you look at Germany in terms of the politics, in terms of taking refugees and all of that, it's an incredible country. It's an incredible country. I think just in terms of certain professions, you still feel it. I think that's the, that's the main point. I think in terms of certain professions, you still feel it. And then at some point you decided to, to move to Berlin. How did that yeah. happen? Why Berlin? I guess because Berlin is like the German New York. 
in terms of possibilities and being a whole yeah. mix of different cultures and right. yeah yeah so um i didn't particularly choose berlin i did it a bit differently so i at the time this i was done with under postgrad what what year are we talking about we're talking 2019 2019 i finished undergrad in 2019 so we finished and the same the same year yeah yeah okay i was a bit slow i took a bit of time in in postgrad me, me I, too me too yeah I think it's also the best advice to give to students ever to take it slow in postgrad. But I studied abroad in London. Um, we had to do an internship at the time, and I did mine in New York. So I'd already lived in New York when I was an undergrad, and I'd worked for Richard Meyer, um, and then came back, did my postgrad, finished masters, and then I really wanted to move back to New York, but I knew it was going to be difficult. So I made an Excel sheet with like my top five cities. And This is also very cities, German, by the way. <laughs> like always something connected to grids but go ahead like a straight line a straight path to follow this is the least iraqi person i'm talking to like <laughs> i'm trying to convince you that i'm still middle eastern i don't know what to do you, you, you're more german than the germans <laughs> i'm sorry i guess i don't know but i did make an excel sheet i did pick five cities and in those five cities i've always been I never compromise about the office that I want to work for. I always have like my top five choices. And if I don't get a job in one of those five jobs, then I'm not going to move to that city. I did it even with my internship when I was just a student. I was, when I picked New York, I was going to be like, it's going to be one of those five offices. And if I don't get a job with them, I need to look somewhere else. So I did the same thing post-grad. And then I heard back from, I heard back from an office in London. I heard back from Berlin. And then I took the job in Berlin and then I moved and I started working on Max Doodler. Um, and then I stayed there for two years. And then a week after I started working in Berlin, I got a call from Big and they're like, hey, do you want to work for us? And I was like, oh, I just signed with, with Max Doodler. I just moved to Berlin. Like I'm literally here. This is my first week. But this is, this is A, this is Big calling. And then this is New York. Like I'm in love with both of these things, right? <laughs> so then... I took the interview with Big. Shortly after they made me an offer, I was like, okay, I'm just going to quit in Berlin. I'm going to take this offer. So I signed the offer to, to Big, and we were just about to start the visa process. And I remember one night I wake up, and then I read in the news that Trump at the time had closed the borders because COVID had just happened. Mm. This is like early 2020, so the pandemic happens. So I get on the phone with someone from Big, and I'm like, yo, what's the status? And they're like, oh, we're just sending, like this day number one from COVID, we're sending people home. I'm sorry, we cannot, we cannot bring you over. There's no way. It doesn't make sense to bring people over right now. So I was like, okay, that's fine. So then I stayed in Berlin and I stayed for two more years. And then... And you work at Max Doodler. You, you didn't quit right I away. I worked at Max Doodler. I didn't quit. No. Oh, I was like, let was... me make sure I get my visa. It was, I was smart about it. I was like, let me make sure I get my that's visa and everything. smart move. <laughs> and I want to point... That... <laughs> point out an Excel sheet for five cities, guys. Just, just saying. <laughs> And five offices in each of these cities. Makes zero sense. <laughs> What do you mean? If you, I know friends when they apply, like it's very hard to get into these big offices. Like it's really, really hard. And like the interview process are very long. The things that they ask for. Sometimes they make you do tests and stuff in terms of the programs that you know. Um, really, they did that who, at Max Doodler. They didn't do that at Max Doodler. Uh -huh. I know that Big does that though. I know that Big 
um, you have to prove a certain proficiency in, in the project. Did you have in. to? Did you have to prove that? So I personally didn't, but I know people who had to. <laughs> I see. Um, but yeah, well, I think it was the good approach. I think it was a good approach. It, it definitely has always gotten me the job that I wanted. Let me say it this way. And uh, did you stay in touch with Big for two years before being able to move to New York? Actually, no, I didn't. They they took the offer back and then I never heard from them. And I was like, this is it. That's done. And also at the time, we didn't know how long the pandemic was going to be or anything. And then a year and a half of working in Berlin, I got an email from the head of HR at the time. And she was like, hey, we're starting to bring people back in. And we're going to start with the people that we had already made offers to pre-pandemic. And you're on our list. I think it was like me and six other people at the time. Um, and she's like, would you still, we, we would love to see where you're at right now. We'd love to see what you've been doing the past year and a half. Would you love, like, would you be interested in talking to us? And I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> I can't say no. <laughs> and uh, did they sort of sponsored you somehow for the visa and so on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they took care of everything. They took care of everything. How how does it work? Like, do you take so did they take you on a temporary contract with temporary visa, or are you able to share some information about this? Because everybody that wants to move to the U.S. know that the big topic is visa. So, yeah. how did it happen for you? Also, where are you on the? There was that Muslim ban. There, there was a several country that from the Muslim yeah. world that were banned for traveling to to yeah. the U.S. Was Iraq on that list? I don't know because Iraq still is. Iraq still is on the list. So how did you get Iraq a visa still... then? So okay, there's there's several aspects. So I'm German on paper, like I'm fully German. I have a German passport, so that makes things incredibly easier than if you had an Iraqi passport. In terms of visas, I'm actually pretty happy to share this because people don't usually know about this. It's not, if, you, if you're still in school, if you've just graduated, there's actually a pretty easy path in order to get a visa. It's very limited in terms of time. It's usually capped at a year and a half of the amount of time that you can get on the visa. So by default, and the contract that you have with those offices is also capped at a year and a half. It's called a J-1. You can get it as an intern or as a trainee. And... The only thing you pretty much need for that is a job offer and a sponsor. And the sponsor can either be like a company that you have or there's sponsors that you kind of reach out to and then they take on the case. Um, and then you just have to prove a few things and then you get the visa. It's pretty easy. You go to an interview at the embassy and here's where being Iraqi or having been to Iraq every year of my life kind of plays a role because... Both times that I applied for a visa, I would watch all these people stand in line and they would get it approved immediately. And with me, both times, they're like, oh, we're actually going to have to do a bit of a background check. We'll let you know. And then would send me away. And that background check can take a week. It can take six months. So then you go away and you don't really know what's going to happen. Um, and then they get back to you eventually and tell you whether or not you're approved. But I don't think this is going to happen to them. I think because I'm Iraqi, because I go every year, because... I have very strong ties to the country. Um, my case was a bit different. But um, did you start as a trainee or what is your contract? Are you just a regular employee? So I'm a regular employee right now. Um, what, what is the difference? Explain, explain trainee because trainee to me, it sounds like a little bit like an intern. So trainees, I think just was 
it can be like they use it, especially when they bring people over often. That's the, the default name of what you can have. Okay, yeah, you you are at big at some somehow. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I do work at big now. I'm employed as a designer. Oh, um, okay, yeah, yeah. because yeah. In, uh, in America officially, of course, you're not an architect because you're not licensed and so on and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm really curious now that we know a little bit about your background, uh, which is very uh, interesting and colorful. Uh, you mentioned a lot of these experiences like London, like you mentioned you went to Bangladesh, you did an internship in New York and all these things sound really fun and they're really great, but uh, they need a little bit of a financial backup. So I'm curious if, I don't know, your family managed to build a great life in Germany and sponsor you somehow yeah. in doing these great things. Or it's because of your straight A's that you got some aid from the government or from universities or if you, I don't know, used right. to work somehow. Because, I mean, I, I'm really curious to understand how people that are on the podcast do what they do. So in order that the people who are listening understand what are the possible ways. Right. So if you say, yeah. I don't know, my father has a, I don't know, a, three tons of gold and I'm fine. Okay, then. Gold. This... Do you say gold because I'm Middle Eastern? Gold oil, money. whatever. If it was oil, <laughs> nice. if it was oil, it would have been to the Americans. So forget about oil. <laughs> um, no, there's definitely an aspect to that. Um, I have never taken a job or an internship that wasn't paid. Like I simply couldn't afford it. I simply could not ever, even Richard Meyer, um, and they paid the bare minimum to interns, like really the bare minimum. Um, but even that, I remember I was with friends at the time in New York who were doing internships that weren't being picked. And I just, I knew, I, first of all, it didn't make sense to me because I knew I was putting in so many hours of food, so much work. It really is difficult to move your whole life from one place to another. It doesn't make sense to do that if you don't get the least a bit paid for it. Like I love architecture, we all do, that's given, but it's also a job at the end of the day. Like I'm not doing this just for fun. Um, so that was one aspect I was always paid. I did always work. Like every time, anytime I went between, like let's say I was in Germany for a semester or two, and then I did something abroad for another semester. I always worked. I was either a TA or I worked in an office. Um, so I always had a job. What is, at a, one point what I, is a TA? It's a teaching assistant. Ah, teaching assistant. Okay. Teaching assistant. So you would, you would work at the university. So at one point I even had, before New York, I had two jobs. I was working both as a TA, I was doing my courses, and I was working in Cologne in a different office. Um, and that's how I saved a bunch of money, I think. And that's what helped me jumpstart, at least getting like my foot in the door. But I do want to be transparent. Even then, even with all the savings I had, even with always only taking paid internships and stuff, I still needed support for my family. Like I still, I remember in New York several times, the salary that I got, I think it was like 2000 a month at the time. And anyone who knows anything about New York knows that at least on average 1300 or something already goes to rent, um, which is like, to me, always the minimum of what I've paid so far. Um, so I remember oftentimes I would just not make ends meet. So I'd have to call my parents and be like, would you mind sending me a bit of money so I can make it to the next month mm. as a student living in New York alone? Um, 1300 you you rent just a bed, right? Just like... It was just a bedroom. It was a bedroom in a two-bedroom apartment in Williamsburg at the time. 
And that room now, I'm pretty sure would go for like 1,600, 1,700. You wouldn't even find that deal today. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a mix of both. It was a mix of working. It was a mix of saving money. It was a mix of only taking opportunities that were paid. um, And then also asking for support when I needed it. I see. And so why, like you, okay, you're from Iraq, but you, you grew up in Germany and Western Germany, which is top notch. I would say it's the California of the, of Europe. It's like, if, if you come here in Western Germany and don't find opportunity for working, something's wrong with you. Why did you, why did you decide to move to New York, which is wild it's just like i visited last year i stayed there for um for a week for or 10 days something like that and uh of course i can imagine downsides and upsides of the city uh but uh how it is how it is uh, why did you want to move to new york and why how it is moving in new york uh, now that you're almost my age so almost 30 around 30 years old and yeah. also architecture is not like, I don't know, you investment banker. So you move to New York and you just go <laughs> around down, you yes. just go downtown Manhattan and drinking <laughs> uh, cosmopolitans and making millions and being in a, I don't know, like the, the suits show sort of. So yeah. how no, it it's is certainly not, my life, my life's certainly not like that. I can promise that. Um, why New York? It's, it's interesting. When I was younger, I, we visited London with my family and I was obsessed with London from the day I visited it. And I was like, this is the greatest city in the world. I love everyone here. I love the vibes. I love how people work. I love how people move. And I was always like very infatuated with like the fast paced life in a big city, even when I was younger. And then when I did live in London, shortly after we traveled to New York for the first time, me and some friends. Um, and I felt absolutely in love with the city. I fell in love with, like, I remember being in the subway and looking around. And thinking to myself, I have to be a part of this. Like, I have to live here. It's it's the way people were moving. It's the way people were living. It's the way people were t- taking up space. But also, I mean, we all grew up in Europe, especially in Germany. You grew up with a lot of, like, U.S. media, like pop culture. So I spent all my life looking, watching movies and TV shows and listening to music, all centered in the U.S. Um, so I think that played a big part of, like, why I was so infatuated with it. And then I did my internship in New York because I was like, oh, I've kind of done London now. I did study abroad there. Um, let me try New York. And then I did try it. And even though financially it was very like rough in terms of people, in terms of community, I had the best time of my life. Work was really rough at Rich and Meyer. I'm not going to lie. It was probably the toughest experience in terms of work that I've ever had. Um, but outside of that, my life was incredible. My life was incredible. So... Um, when I went back and I finished school, I was like, I want to get back to that. Like, I want to pick up where I left off. Um, so let me at least try to see if I can land a job in New York again, post-grad. Yeah. So that was kind of what, what led me there. And, and how, how it is now that you landed a job at big, how is life now that you work full time? Because it's different than you when you're 20 something and it's different when you're 30 something. So right. uh, I, I, for example, when I arrived here and I was 23, I lived in a dorm for, uh, in a room for hundred euro a month. And it was a nine square meter room with just a bed. And I was the happiest, yeah. the happiest person in the world. And 
I started my first internship where they paid me 11 euro per hour for doing Photoshop. And I was like, these guys are paying me and I'm having fun and it's great. And they gave me like 1,000 euro a month and stuff like that. And for me, that was the happiest moment ever. Uh, but if you put me now in a nice square meter room, I wouldn't be so much up for it. So <laughs> I'm curious how it is in New York now that you're grown up and then that you moved to big. And uh, I mean, again, as I said, the salary of an architect, it's not like, woohoo, let's lay, yeah. like, let's, let's have fun in New York. Now I'm <laughs> going to change the skylight of Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the salary of an architect in Germany is also not a lot. So I uh, always knew I was not going to... Shout out to Carpus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you make, but I remember even in Germany, compared to my other friends who worked in other industries, even then I didn't make a lot. So when you're an architect, especially if you work for... I've always said that if you work for big names in the architectural world, or if there's a design vision that you really believe in, and that's what you seek out, which so far has always been the case. I've only worked for architects where I really believed in the work that they did. Um the pay is kind of working for them. <laughs> like it's, it's ironic, but that's part of the, the package that you get. Um, but life now as an adult in New York, I'm not going to lie, it's very different. It's very different from being an intern. I'm not as naive about it anymore, I would say. I'm not as like blue-eyed. I don't walk past the skylines. And I'm like, oh my God, this is... Everyone has to move here. I'm sure everyone would ha be happier if they lived in New York versus wherever they are right now. Um, because I did Berlin for two years, and it was also incredible. Like, life in, in Berlin, in a big city in Germany, you don't, like, it's very different. In New York, it's very important to make a lot of money and have a lot of money and hoard money, kind of. But Germany doesn't really work that way. Like, no one, like, a CEO of, like, the biggest company in Germany makes, I think, what an average engineer makes in, in New York. Um, so the salaries are I just don't, I don't different. think so. <laughs> I'm, in you don't? I'm in Frankfurt, and... Uh, the amount of Ferraris you see here, it's, ab it's above average. <laughs> okay, Berlin's not like that. Berlin's I don't know where like did you live. You lived, I don't know, poor Germany. Quite back. <laughs> yeah, not in Frankfurt, not on our watch. Really? Here we have Porsches, yeah. Bugattis, and you name it, we have it. And Oh, maybe uh, I should have moved to Frankfurt. <laughs> well, it's called Manhattan. It's like the, the European New York in really? terms of finances. And... There is cash, a lot of cash. And okay, I but Frankfurt is the city that's kind of centered around. It's also the only city almost that has a high line, like skyline. Yeah, in, yeah, in, in yeah. Germany. But also, so it's very different for But also, I don't in, think you can it in, like... in Munich, they make a lot of money. And the CEOs of, of, I don't know, of Mercedes and BMW and all that big. Do you feel like it can be compared to New York? Oh, they own New York. Those guys have a lot of money. Come on, we have Deutsche ba uh, Bank. Oh, the banks. The, I knew you were going to say the banks next. <laughs> no, the banks. The, come on, we have the bank. Yeah, we yeah, we, we the created bank. the 2008 crisis. Like, be respectful towards German banks. <laughs> the, German, the German banks. <laughs> yes, like they make a lot I of money. People. Those people go to New York and say it's cheap. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but my point is, I don't know about other people. Okay, my point is, as an architect... It really doesn't matter where I live. I feel like we never, I'm never making what a banker makes. Yeah. That's just a fact. I'm never going to make what someone in finance makes. And then don't, like the salaries just don't compare to someone in tech or in finance or anything like that. Well, if you go to a, like a real estate developer, you might get closer, but not like. But you can't compare working for a real estate developer to. 
an architecture doing office. the designs and an architectural office that does the impactful work that some yeah. of the offices do. I, that I, we, I was just trying to th- saying if you had the goal to make money, there are ways to go to make. But then money. I wouldn't have become an architect. I think <laughs> I don't think I would have been like, oh, architecture school is the perfect way to make a shit ton of money. Like, I just don't like, especially if you stay in the architectural, in the traditional architectural route. Hmm. Like maybe if you do go to a developer, yes. Well, but. I, I would say my impression when I was in New York, and you can tell me now as somebody that lives there if it's correct or not, that the biggest value of New York, if I was living there uh, as an architect, would be networking. Like if you go to some architectural event or whatever event there is in the city that's related to the industry, you will meet, I don't know, top-notch of the field experts, a bunch, it's like true. a lot. And uh, yeah. I, I remember when we were visiting Soho and when there are all the galleries, I was thinking, if you're an artist here, for sure you're going to struggle. But if you want to find collaborations and if you're good, you're in the center of the world. So you're going to find out the best thing. So I think the f- and of course, the vibe of the city, it's really cool. But I don't know if it's that cool after you live there for a year or two, because in the end of the day, it becomes your like everyday life. I remember when I was in Rome and I was passing by, I don't know, the Colosseum or things like that. All the tourists yeah. looking around, I was like, who cares? It's like, <laughs> like a traffic jam. So I'm guessing that's a big plus, right? So you, you were there. And, and you, I'm working on I think it's the, it's definitely the networking aspect, but I think it's also, there's like several layers. There's first of all, the work that I do currently, like the projects that I'm involved in and generally the things that big does, you don't have access. I think to that, to that level, I, I personally didn't have access to those, that clientele, or those projects, um, anytime before this. So that's a huge aspect for me, like doing the work that I currently do. I think this is the most exciting time in my career. It feels like it was so far. Um, so that's a big plus of New York. Um, also, like when I was younger, when I lived there, I built like a very nice community. I met people that I really, really got attached to, that I really loved. And I'm still friends with those people. They all luckily stayed in New York throughout the pandemic and stuff. So I do feel like I'm, I have a very good base of people around me. My Like one of my best friends from Germany also moved to New York around the same time that I did. And they're still there. Um, so it also feels a bit like I took a bit of home with me and stuff. Um, so I'm set in that way too. I think the downside is just, I think what you're talking about, the point that you're getting to is kind of sustainability, like living a sustainable life is kind of difficult in New York. Like you, it really does feel like, because also things change so quickly in New York, like people come into the city and they leave and projects happen and then they stop and this goes and this comes. Like this is always a turnaround. And I felt I think that's a very big difference that I've personally felt in my life to Berlin. Like things were just steadier and calmer and things were one way and then they just could go on this way and you could rely on things still being that way tomorrow. Um, and that's the difference, I think. But the networking aspect is also very true. It's also very, very true. Like I, I went to an event last week, or like that was last week, like a few weeks ago. But I met like, the, 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 it was all like centered around women in architecture. And the women that I met at this event, I was like, this is crazy. Like I've read about these people in architectural school. I've read about their offices. I walked past their projects. Who did you meet? Like, wow. 
I make, give us founders. names. We don't care about content. Like, <laughs> no. we want so just all the glam, all the glamour. We don't care about the really? uh, architecture books. <laughs> <laughs> I was invited to this event. I was called by Madam Architect. They are a publication that focuses on like women in architecture, women in design. Now they're branching out, and meeting Julia, the founder, was incredible because. Like, I think it was like five years ago. It was exactly five years ago. This is the, what the event was about. She set out to, to kind of give women in architecture a voice and publish them and profile them. Um, so going there and seeing what she's accomplished, she started this little blog and now she's covered, think of every woman that you can think of in architecture that has made strides and that is public, she's spoken to. Um, so that was incredible. And then the founder of Mass Architects, this is a firm that focuses very heavily on project developments and making architecture um, in, in Africa. Incredible. I met the founder of Shop Architects. This is um, a woman that set up this, this office when she was still in grad school at Columbia. And then with two other people, she founded this firm with three other people. And it's become one of the most successful firms in, in America. They do some of the most high-profile projects in New York City right now. Um, and then I was just surrounded by all these women. And I was like, this feels incredible. This feels just in terms of being an architecture student, being a woman, being an architecture student, it probably doesn't get bigger than this in terms of being around people who are successful in the, in the field that I'm in. So yeah, that New York is special in that way, for sure. And uh, why did you love big so much? Because you said it's big. And I, the people who follow this podcast, maybe I've said about my point of view, why I love that much, that office. And uh, I apply sometimes and they never go back to me. So I guess I suck. <laughs> But um, I'm curious why why you particularly wanted to work for Big, and uh, if you can share, make sure before you answer this part of the question, some of the work you've worked on, something that's not yeah. top secret. Otherwise, don't share anything about your projects. But yeah, I'm curious why Big was a big topic for okay. you. So this is interesting because I was I was. Um, giving you a similar answer to what I said when I was interviewed at the time by Big. Before, so before Big, I worked for architects that had a very, very strong one language. Like if you look at Max Tudler, you can really rely on the kind of architecture that you get from him. You kind of know. If you, make a pro if you do a project with Max Tudler... It's a grid. They start with a grid. It's a grid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say it, but the grid is very important. And then before that, Richard Meyer, same thing. Like there's only... There's one very dominant language, and every now and then one project looks a bit different, but the majority of facades, if you walk past a building, like even now if I work, walk, like walk somewhere down the street, I walk past a building, I'm like, yo, this has to be a Richard Meyer building, and it is. So before that, I only worked for architects that did one thing, and you could really rely on them. You would learn that language, and you perfect it. Every person, every designer in the office by then knows exactly what to do when they approach a new project, or how to jumpstart it. But when it came to big, like if you look at their profile, at their portfolio, I would argue almost every project looks completely different than the one before. And then I, I said it at the time, I was like, some of them I'm in love with. They're so sensitive and so quiet and they're so, so careful to fit into the environment that they're in. And then some projects are so loud, you have to look at it and you're like, what is going on? You know, and then in Manhattan right now, if you take the... Which one do you love and which one do you think are very loud? Okay, so for example, in Manhattan... The spiral, I love. I love, love, love in terms of the facade, in terms of what it does, in terms of the connection between indoor, outdoor space. 
And it's a language that I can really get in line with. But then if you go a few blocks west and south, there's Via, the triangle. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> See, that's what you would say. But imagine being an architecture student in Germany and looking at Via and oh, seeing like a awesome. pointed building with a top. Awesome. You <laughs> I, do, remember, it... I remember, like to this day, I don't understand. I need to do my research on this, but I need to look at what the layouts are like for the top floors. But I remember thinking, like, I don't understand how the layouts are going to work. It's Nobody so cares. Nobody cares about the layout. <laughs> Everyone's on the pyramid in New York. Who cares about the layout? So this is very interesting because my job is layouts, like even at Big Now. I'm the planner, of course. <laughs> so I really care about layouts. I really, really care about layouts. Um, I, imagine, so, and now- I imagine Kai and Bjorke literally sitting together after they completed VIA. They look at the layouts and say, hmm, we might need to hire a German. <laughs> <laughs> so VIA happened like, what, like 10 years before I, I joined BIG? Um, 2015, like, 16, because they got a prize here in Frankfurt. And I met for the first time uh, a partner of BIG. They, went, they, yeah. they received the prize here. No, it's, and I know now because I met people who lived in VIA. I know now that they're incredibly happy with the indoor-outdoor experience and they have a courtyard, which is incredibly rare in New York to have, like a massive courtyard, like within the walls of the building. So that was something that I said during the interview at the time too, like I'm very curious to know and to learn how projects that for me are like, I kind of need to wrap my head around in terms of how they work design-wise to then see how big makes it work and how they sell it and how people start to love the experience that they have in those buildings. Um, so the kind of the duality of those like very loud projects and the very sensitive ones was something that I was like, oh, I'd be interested to learn how to do both things. Um, yeah, and that's what drew me to big. No, totally. I, 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 I like it because this is a point that he shares also in the Netflix, uh, Netflix documentary where he says that having a style, it's sort of having like a prison, right? Yeah. Because... Uh, he he has some like the office has some sort of a style, but it's this uh, completely functional adaptation of the shape of the building, which brings us to Via. Uh, but I love yeah. that project and the and the layout works because I've checked the layouts and and they work. Do you have? Yeah. Do you know they, I, still have, I need to do that? I need to do that. I still they, that. I mean, you don't get the best apartments, but you get a great apartment for new york i guess yeah so yeah and and yeah with so many factors in an architecture project to value if a, an apartment is good or not because the layout is good for the people who are renting or buying the apartment but if you make more apartments that are not that great that's better for the investor because he's gonna get more money so it's very yeah. op- opinable if something is good or bad and so on and so forth um for sure. yeah and can you share about some projects that you're working on or you're not sure? Oh, I can. I can. I can definitely talk about the... So you're right. Most of the projects I've been involved in because they're in later phases. Everything that happens is kind of protected. But um, I'm working on one project. I think I'm at least allowed to share what I do and what the project is. And it's by far the most interesting thing I've ever worked on. Um, I'm working on Toyota Woven City right now. And... It's basically like a city of the future is what they call it or how they advertise it, like a urban incubator um, at the foothills of Mount Fuji outside of Tokyo. And it's a city that is by Toyota for people who, who work in that, live in that area. 
um, and Big did the master plan for that a few years ago. And now we're designing one building within that master plan. And I'm on that project. And I focus mostly on planning. and But also a bit of like, we're still doing all kinds of studies. So I'm involved in, in a lot of layers. The whole team is, I would say, involved in all, every aspect. Um, but yeah, it's incredible. I actually got to visit uh, and meet with the client um, a while back. And this is the second time, the second phase that I'm in, in, that I'm working on Toyota for the project. And it's, yeah, it's super interesting. It's super interesting because it's truly is like, okay, how do, how do we design the future? Like, what does this tell us about the future? How do we make, if this, if we do this, how is this going to span out with the new technology that Toyota wants to involve in the project? How, how do we bring mobility, um, people and the built environment all together? How do we connect them all? I think that's what's meant when they talk about an incubator. Everything's supposed to be connected with sensors and data. Um, and how does that look like in architecture? So it's a lot of unknown for me, too. I certainly wasn't taught any of this in architectural school. Um, so the learning curve is very, very high. But yeah, that's what I'm currently doing. And uh, what are, in terms of skill set, uh, technical skill set that you need to have to work at Big? Like, I guess you have to use a little bit of Revit, Rhino. What, what, what are your usual softwares that you use on a daily basis? Uh, I think the two that you mentioned, Rhino and Revit. Um, Rhino is an absolute must. Is it Grasshopper and, or Rhino? Yeah. So majority I use Rhino um, because I'm only involved, or like the majority of the time involved in planning. But people use Grasshopper quite a lot, especially in the early phases. Of, and do you of do you I, can you use Grasshopper too? Or? I have no idea how to use Grasshopper. Uh. I have no idea. And could, Anything that's relatively programming, I'm like, okay, I need to start from scratch. Okay. And could you work with Rhino before <laughs> joining the office? Okay. Somewhat, very rarely. Oh. But here's the thing about every office that I've worked on. You you can do it a little bit. And when you come, they kind of, in German, they would say, push you, like throw you into the cold water. And then you just have to know it. So at the beginning of BIG, I remember the first month, I stayed late every night to try to catch up and learn this freaking tool. Um, but even now I feel like because I focus more on planning and I'm more in like drawing layouts and then I jump into Revit very quickly, I still, when it comes to building models, I feel like I'm still very slow. So I'm still catching up. I feel like. Okay. I see. I see. So I am yeah. going to, I'm going to make a, a short appeal to the big people. Big people contact me for an interview because I think I can cover a lot of the requirements. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the tools? In terms of everything. <laughs> really? I am. Oh my God, you should talk to Kai. You should talk to Kai. Yeah, I, well, I, sh I should talk to Kai. I should really talk to Kai. Like, <laughs> he'll probably hear to this to this interview, so he'll know. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I get a carpus salary, so... <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's let, see. Maybe we can share after. Maybe you can compare notes after this this conversation offline of what that looks like. Yeah, yeah, that's never a good idea because, like, I suggest to all the people to never ask or know uh, how much people are getting at their offices because it can become a mayhem. Like, people get jealous, people get uh, unhappy. Just decide what you want and take take it for what it makes you happy for what you're doing. Um, I have two last big questions that I want to cover because it's interesting to me. Uh, they're both personal. I'm going to start with the personal 
one that it regards more of what we have covered so far. So I have to say you sort of uh, covered my impression that you're very smart, very uh, motivated, very ambitious person and woman that has gone through many difficulties and strong character because also it requires um, ambition, but it requires also consistency to go through all these difficulties. And I know it because I have a similar background. Uh, I mean, don't come so far away as you from Iraq, but I guess that Bulgaria and Iraq, we're coming from, we're very similar countries somehow uh, in terms of standard. So you mentioned you've done so many things and so many internships, working so many jobs to finance all your uh ambitious projects. How was your personal life? Did you have time to have fun, to have a boyfriend, to have fun? Uh, I, you can answer or not answer. It's just, I think it's important to say that to people who are listening that what you've done, it's cool, but it has some price you have to pay that's not only financial. So I'm curious how was, if you say, oh, my life was chill, then uh, you're genius. Uh, and I'm congratulating you. <laughs> So I would argue curious. it's not chill. I would definitely argue. I don't think it'd be it'd be it'd be the truth if I said it's always been chill. Like especially being a student and doing all the things that I did. I remember the internship. I think that was I mentioned earlier. That was the roughest time in terms of hours. Like I don't know if I'm allowed to share this, but I think I'll just go ahead. But during like the understanding, I think in most like especially those like famous architectural offices, kind of. You do whatever it takes to get the to meet the deadline. Like you do whatever it takes, and some offices are better about it than others. But especially when you're an intern, it's very hard to set boundaries. It's very hard to say no, um, for obvious reasons. And especially if you're in that environment, there's a reason why you're there. You want to be there. You want to work in these successful environments. You want to be part of those projects and blah, blah blah. But I remember when I was an intern one time, I spent like, I think it was almost like five consecutive days in the office including nights. Like I would go home, I would take a shower, come back immediately into the office. Me and the other interns, we would take turns in who's allowed to sleep for like three hours, four hours. This was towards the end of like a project. We were building the model for it. And it was incredibly rough. And I remember at the time thinking, I was like, I don't think this is worth it. Like, I don't think I'm, I'm gonna, certainly not getting paid for what I'm doing here. And interns don't get a lot of recognition. So what am I doing this for? Like, in terms of mental health, in terms of just like time that you spend, I remember that being very difficult. And then I, I kind of, after that experience, I was like, I'm, I'm going to have some conversations before I start working somewhere and I'm going to tell them. And I even do this now. And I really, I think this is where my, my German side really comes in. Like before I start a project, I tell them from the very beginning, I'm available throughout the majority of this time, but maybe this window, I'm not going to be available. Or those days... I don't know if I can do that. Um, so before, that was really rough. And I felt like I didn't have a lot of time for my personal life. But now I make it a point. And sometimes I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to be here. Uh, but let me know if I can catch up afterwards or whatever. Um, so it's always been a balance. It's always been a balance. But I do feel like, I'm not going to like, even in New York, but I think this is also a very New York thing. I feel like I am more often than not a bit racing against time. Because I do, I really care about my personal life. I go to a lot of things with my friends, I do a bunch of stuff, my personal life, everything. Um, so I always insist on being able to do all of it. And 
either work suffers sometimes or my personal life suffers sometimes, but I do make sure that there's some sort of balance. It sounds like I've drank in the Kool-Aid. I feel like now that I talk about it myself, it sounds very unbelievable, but I really try to do all of it. No, um, I just wanted to know because, I mean, despite working in an architecture office, also the other things you said, it was like sometimes you had to work multiple jobs and things like that. And I remember myself when I started being a part-time uh, employed student in an architecture office, my life was work, study, work, sleep, study, and mm, the working at an office made me way more efficient in what I was doing at the university because I learned how to work with different programs in a professional way, which is a big game changer. Uh, because when you are a student in the first years, you just figure it out yourself. And then when you start working, you understand how your whole, you change mentality also because you work, I started working in a German office, which was very efficient. They were like, we don't do stuff we're not paid for. So I shifted my mentality. I don't do things that are necessary because if I, I mean, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why I was curious because everything sounds great. Like, you know, if I talk to you now, you live in New York, you work in big and doing cool stuff, but there is a big background in the, in, in, in behind you. There's, I, I, there's a lot of sacrifices, but that I feel like, like anything that you are very, very passionate about it, that you pursue very hardly, I think comes with a bunch of sacrifices. Um, I think my biggest sacrifice at the moment is that I don't live close to my family. Yeah. I think that's, I would argue that's my biggest sacrifice that I live, I live in this amazing city and I, I have this cool job. I work on incredible projects, but at the end of the day, I see my family three times a year max on a good day. It's three times a year. So, and I miss a lot of things. Like I miss, I just by default miss out on a lot of things. Like my brother has a little daughter. She grows up very quickly mm. and I feel like I, I experience it through photos. Um, like and, my parents, I'm, I'm, and that's why I'm curious because in my case, it's easier because I cannot go back. Like there is nothing waiting for me professionally in Bulgaria or in Italy because it's a real disaster. You, you, you can forget about it. So it's like you're living a burning house and you're not thinking, uh, I have to go back. But in your case, it must have been so much difficult because you come from Germany. It's like not you're coming from, I don't know, Bulgaria. I didn't move from Italy. Iraq. I didn't actually move from Iraq. That's true. I know, but that's also what I have to like. It's a conversation I keep having with my friends back in Germany and also like my parents because they're like, I, like we understand that you, you're trying to seek better opportunities, but this is a pretty good opportunity. Like what we're looking at right here is already like pretty, pretty good. Um, so that's something that's always in the back of my mind, like how, how sustainable, that's what I meant also, how sustainable is my life in New York? Like how long can I do this while being away so far from my family? Like now, this is the thing, like when I was an intern, I lived in New York for a full year. I didn't see my family once throughout the whole time. I didn't have money to go back. Um, at the time, I was also like, I was just working too much, so I didn't have a lot of visitors throughout the whole time. But now that I have a full-time job and I'm a bit more comfortable, um, I make it a point to travel back for Christmas break. I make it a point to travel back late in the summer um, or meet up with my sisters, with my brothers somewhere in a different country if they are available, if I'm available. Um, 
So it's gotten a little better, but it's still not where it should be, in my opinion. Like, it's still not the amount of time that I do feel like I should be seeing my family. Yeah, but in your case, it's also a lot of expenses to come back to Europe. And also, um, the internship was something temporary, right? You're going there, you know, you stay there for six months or one year or whatever it is. And then the time is over and you go back. And now it's more like... You, you, it's up to many other factors. Maybe it's the visa. It's one of my existential crises that I have exactly. at the moment. <laughs> like, why am I doing this? How long am I going to do this? <laughs> and and this is my next question, and it's a great transition that we made because one question was about what we've talked about, and the other question that I have to you, uh, because after talking to you now, I feel I know a little bit about you more because. Once uh, I hear the story and feel the vibe of the conversation, is what is your dream or uh, ambition or yeah ambition or dream career-wise for you as an architect? What would like you have now achieved a big milestone for everyone that works in the industry because you work at I don't know top-notch. Like there is not like you you're in the top league of architecture offices, so yeah, you can shift, but you cannot there is no tier a tier up mm -hmm. this one um mm -hmm. so is it for you I don't know not that you're big would be a dream to to move up the ladder at big or is it is it your dream to start your own architecture offices and focus on i don't know these projects that are in problematic areas of the world or what is your motivation because in the end of the day you have to have some motivation and this is what i mentioned before once you come from a country that you have nothing to regret about yeah. you have a lot of hunger and you have no doubts. And I'm curious if you know if you're, or maybe you're still finding what it's going to be. Yeah. So some of the answers are already know. Some of them I have no, no freaking idea. Um, I know that I, right now I don't want to open my own office. <laughs> no desire whatsoever to start, a, to start my own firm at the moment. I don't know if that's going to be, but also I don't, my, I don't have a desire to open an own office if it's a traditional architectural office. Like I don't, What, I want to work on projects. What is an untraditional architecture office for you? So what I could imagine doing, I would be interested in, is let's say like 10 years from now, I open my own studio and it focuses on a mixture of maybe a few small projects, but maybe a lot of research, maybe collaborations with NGOs. And I lean into the architectural activism aspect more. And it's more about raising awareness and talking to different people that already do this and bring those people together and stuff like that versus building a townhouse or building, I don't know, even if it's something fancy like a museum. So like an interdisciplinary office, I could imagine. Something that is a bit more on the exploratory side. Um, that's something that I could imagine. I could never imagine opening my own shop, a regular architectural office. In terms of big, I definitely want to ride the wave that I'm currently on. Like I'm very happy being a designer at big and the opportunities that I'm getting. So I definitely want to do this for as long as it makes sense for both parties. Um, what is my motivation? So something that I've always been interested in, but this is also my father being an immigrant father, is he really, really loved for me to do this. Is I've always wanted to go back to school and do research a bit more. So a PhD has always been in the back of my head. Um, and there's great PhDs in urban design that I'm very, very interested in. Like I'm very interested in cities in general and development 
Um, so that's something that I could consider doing down the future. If I ever want to get a break from working on projects all the time, I think this is something that, I, that would really motivate me. Yeah, I'm really curious to, to follow you now on to see where, uh, where you get to go. Uh, because I think uh, you're a very interesting person with a very interesting background, but I think that the future is also very interesting around you. So uh, I'll be following. And uh, the very, very, very last question, I don't know if you've been listening to the Creative Insider, but in in the end of every episode, the end has to be always on a positive uh, note on a very proactive. Uh, everyone that works in a creative field, uh, whether it's architecture or anything else, there are moments where you feel highly disinspired with what you do. So I'm curious if there are some uh, books, music, movies, podcasts, events, sports, traveling or anything else. It doesn't have to be all of those things or but anything that you feel it's your way of recharging your creative batteries. Can I be very boring? Yeah, go ahead. You do, you do grits, you do grits. I'm feeling it. (laughs) Okay. So there's two things that I do that really uplift me. Three things, I think, but one of them is just, I think, a universal thing, like spending time with people that I love and venting to them and then having them kind of pick me up or whatever. I think that's just, I think it's universal for everyone. I've started getting really into running. Um, I'm currently training for a half marathon and I think that's, I always feel better after a run. I could feel like absolutely miserable in the beginning. And then at the end of it, I feel a bit uplifted. And then something that I do that I really tell like my core, it's like, hey, you should get into this. Blah, blah. When I'm just drawing, I'm not like designing. I'm not, I don't, I'm not reading anything. Up. Like I'm blindly drawing, which is a good portion of my time as an architect. I listen to podcasts a lot. And there's one podcast that when things were a bit heavy, especially during the pandemic and work was very studious and every day felt like the next, blah, blah, blah. I got into one podcast that really helped me. It's called 10% Happier. And it was about meditation at the time. I'd gotten into like yoga and stuff like that. So I still listen to it and I still recommend it to people. So every time I'm like, everything's lousy during work, especially I listen to one of those episodes <laughs> and I really highly recommend it. I've heard about this podcast. I think it's from this guy who was a journalist, Dan, Dan Harris. Exactly, Dan Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked at CNN, I think. And he also talks a lot about, like, I think everyone who does a lot of work and is very passionate about their work kind of feels the same. Sometimes there's like these waves of like minor burnouts or whatever. Like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Blah, blah. So we all really have the same thoughts. Like, everyone thinks they're so unique and stuff. But at the end of the day, I think our struggles are all very similar. So these stuff like that really helps me. I I think so I've I've heard that. Uh, no, it's not boring at all. It <laughs> were there were great suggestions and a lot the of lamest answer planet Earth. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> but why there is no lame answer? Anything that the thing you said about spending time with the people that loves you, it's a very interesting answer. Actually, <laughs> not I don't think anyone said that before. Uh, in the ten percent happier podcast, I heard about it on the podcast that made me start my podcast because this guy was a guest on um the ground up show who is a which oh, was a nice. which was a podcast by matt davella and he stopped his podcast and i decided to start my own podcast uh That's and so this is the circle it's closed the full circle yes <laughs> the first circle is closed so it's uh interesting no i'm gonna give it a try to that podcast sounds great please uh, do 
please do. I'll I'll let yeah, you know. I'll let you know how how it was for me. And uh, I'm really curious to see your results on the half marathon also to see how you're going to. Oh, my God. The pressures are now that I publicly, I've, I think I've told one friend I'm going to do it. And now I've publicly said it. So which which, which it. half marathon scary. are you running? Which one? So, so there's one that I think this is the one. I haven't even signed up yet, but I just ran like my first like proper race, which is a 10K about a week ago. So now I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm training like every week, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's going to be the New Jersey half, I think, if I'm going to make it, which is so lame. I always thought like my first marathon, like half marathon would be in Brooklyn. It would be the Berlin one. But I think it's going to be the New Jersey one. Actually. It's better to start in New Jersey. So if things go wrong, it went wrong in New no Jersey. No one knows about it. <laughs> <You're> gonna, <laughs> but anyone who's go- familiar with New York knows like the relationship that we, New York is half to New Jersey. And everyone knows who the energy around like the Brooklyn half or like the New York marathon in general is like the greatest thing on earth. So, <laughs> well, I hope you manage to do the half marathon successfully and to do the first marathon in New York so that it's going to be Thank you so much. Kinda, ki- kind of a cool uh, story. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I want so to much. say to you that this was your first time, but now that you have become kind of part of the TCI family, we will want for sure to, to hear about updates. So you're always welcome back in the future to talk again about your career and architecture. And yeah, so thank you very much for your time. It was great. Thank you so much for having me. This is incredible. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye.